I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Cuban-American writer Jose Iriarte. His short stories have been published in Uncanny Magazine, Fireside Fiction, Podcastle, and more. His short story, Proof by Induction, was nominated for both a Nebula Award and for the Hugo Award for Best Short Story. He joins me today from his home in Florida. Jose, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. I am always curious about that moment when writers figure out that they're writers. What is your origin story? Well, gosh, um, there's figuring out that I'm a writer and there's figuring out that I could sell stories, which is a totally different moment. Um, I was writing since my pretty early childhood. I remember um, when I was in sixth grade writing superhero stories about a about a kid um named karate kid but had this was before the karate kid movies came out <laughs> so no relationship i was sure i was going to finish a book but that, that didn't happen and starting many books that i didn't finish well i got my first um rejection from a magazine actually from dragon magazine when i was 13 years old i guess my process was Every few years, every like three or four years, I'd write a bunch of short stories and send them out. And uh, what's the word? I would simultaneously submit them in contravention of all the rules and get quickly <laughs> rejected by everybody. And then I would say, this sucks. And I would stop sending things out for a few years. And then enough time would go by, I'd think, gee, I, I really... I really, I like to write and I really want to sell something. So let me try again and see what happens. And then it took until just a few months after my 40th birthday before I finally sold one. Wow. And that was nearly a decade ago. Yep. Yep. That was, um, I guess it was about exactly a decade, you know, a little over a decade ago. Yeah. So so you were writing and sending out stories in the days before the internet, which I yeah. try to explain to, you know, younger students and different things, that that was a completely different world. Yep. Yeah. It's funny. I remember uh, one of the rejections that I got when I was a teenager complimented me on, on the way that I had packaged it. And I'm like, well, I just followed the rules, you know, cause I would, I would go to the library uh, and check out the big fat books that would tell me how to, format my submission and they said well you know you should uh, type it on this kind of paper and or print it on this kind of paper and you should send in a self-addressed stamped envelope and you should package it this way and I just followed all the rules uh, but I do remember getting one like oh hey, that was well done and I'm like oh cool oh no I remember what it was now one of the suggestions that I saw was that you also include a postcard that was self-addressed and stamped that the market could use to let you know that they had received your work and then they could use your self-addressed stamped envelope to send you the rejection for your work. <laughs> that was very, very thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm putting in so much labor for these people to reject me with. <laughs> how, how do you think your writing has grown over the years, especially since that first story sale. That first sale, by the way, that I'm still fond of that story. Um, so I, I think it actually is very much of, of a kind with a lot of the stories of mine that, that have resonated with people. But 
I feel when I look back, even the stories that I sold, there are stories that I sold that I think, well, oh, that's interesting. I would not write that story now. And I, I think that for me, it feels like kind of a streamlining of what I do as I see which are the stories that that resonate and which are the stories that linger. And I started not too long after, you know, sometime around 2013, 2014, I started jokingly with my friends referring to some stories as Joe stories. My friends call me Joe. And uh, and they were the stories that tended to be about relationships. And they were the stories that tended to um, maybe echo whatever kind of angst I was experiencing in my own life, as opposed to stories that that didn't do those things. So I'm thinking of a story right now that is sold that I that I would not characterize as a Joe story. It, it was um, called Message from Beyond, and it's um, a published story. It's about a a guy who is attempting to use his um, uncommunicative aunt or grandmother, I no longer remember, who was a medium that to, to basically use her as a scam and claim that she still is a medium. But what he doesn't realize is she does still actually have that that vision and she's trying to warn him and he's not seeing it. And I'm like, well, that, that is a perfectly adequate story, but it's not a story I would write these days because it doesn't really push those buttons in me. Hmm. Those buttons, I think, is is something that I love about your writing. Uh, so many of your stories I've really been fond of. Um, I think back to Spirit of Home, which mm -hmm. came out a few years ago now, as just being this incredibly beautiful take on a small moment, maybe, for mm -hmm. a migrant family, just this relationship. And relationships seem to be one of the things, maybe this is part of your Joe story approach these days, but yeah. it's the relationships that you write about that are so incredibly beautiful, even when they're kind of horrifying. Like I'm thinking of Amanda draw, draws crows, mm -hmm. for example. Um, you know, this kind of very, very intense story of a father using a daughter for personal reasons, but then that hug at the end. Yeah. It's, it's just my my headcanon for that story. It's it, it's strange to use to apply the word headcanon to your own work, but it's not in the text. It's really there for people to to take away whatever they will. But in my mind, he knows. He he knows that he is not going to survive whatever is coming, and that all his daughter is trying to do is trying to separate her um, destiny from his. Oh wow! I love that. Mm -hmm. How, how do you find that balance in a story that can have these horrible things present, but also in a way feel gentle to us as a reader? Gosh, <laughs> what a question. Let me think. Um, I think I draw a lot on my background and my past and my traumas and, and also the things that I worry about and stress about. I had a lot of very complicated uh, childhood family relationships, some very toxic and some just a little toxic. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I guess sticks with me is how, is how relationships are, are complicated. Um, the good ones can still have their elements of toxicity and their tox and the toxic ones can still have those elements of, of care and, and touching points and, and relationships. So um, I guess that's what I'm drawing on is as I'm trying to, to 
to to live in that conflict in that space so with a uh, spirit of home the relationship between tina and her father kind of evolves and and tina there there isn't i i hope that the people don't flatten the story and take away oh tina grew up and realized she was wrong all along because she wasn't mm. she just kind of cared for the relationship that she had with her father, even if they didn't always see eye to eye about things, you know, and uh, with proof by induction, again, very similar in terms of that is a, a complicated relationship. Uh, and there is grief that uh, uh, that Jamie has for for his father. But it's it's not a simple grief because the relationship was not a simple relationship. I said Jamie, but that's the wrong name. That, it's Polly, Polly. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you write so many characters, they're going to start merging, right? <laughs> um, Proof by Induction uh, was came out in 2021, and it was a finalist for the Hugo and Nebula Awards this year. What mm -hmm. was it like to get those nominations? Absolutely thrilling, especially the Hugo, because I had previously been nominated for the Nebula, but I had not been nominated for the Hugo. And you know, there's two parts to this. First, I grew up very conscious of these awards. I started reading science fiction when I was around uh, 12 or so, really. I mean, I'm sure there were childhood books, but I kind of graduated there. Uh, there wasn't really young adult as we know it now. So I graduated to the science fiction shelves when I was around 12 and with, with Heinlein, sorry. Um, and so from a very young age, I remember if a book had those shields on the cover, this book was a Nebula winner, this book was a Hugo winner, then that that tended to correlate with books that were going to be powerful and books that were going to surprise me and knock my socks off. So I was always aware of that as, as a goal. And, and being a finalist for the Nebula, it's like, I've gotten to join my heroes. And it's really amazing. And it's amazing that, that my peers valued the work that I had done. But I remember when I was a finalist for the Nebula, um, my, uh, what's the word for this? My Google alert kept bringing up like Reddit threads where people would go, Ariarte, who, who is this? I've never heard of this person <laughs> over and over and over again. So being a finalist for the Hugo Awards communicated to me that, that the readers had finally picked up an awareness of who I was. And that was very gratifying. Yeah, I should explain very quickly for our audience that the Nebula Awards are nominated by members of the Science Fiction Writers Association. Mm -hmm. um, and the Hugo Awards are a general, you know, if you have a membership as the public, you get to nominate for those. Um, I, I loved Proof by Induction, the story of a, a man and his father, as you mentioned, they're trying to solve a mathematical proof together. And I don't want to give too much away but it's a really unique set of circumstances that they're trying to solve this in. But it also felt like it was just a really personal story for you. It really was. Yeah. Um, my father passed away in late 2017 and he um, had a degree in math. He was a university professor for a time, although not in math and computer science and we had, you know, one of those complicated, fraught relationships. He was from a generation and from a cultural background and maybe from a family background where he had never really 
picked up the skills in the warm in the warm fuzzies and, and kind of giving people emotional support. So there were things that I grew up wanting to hear from him and never really kind of getting to have that opportunity. And a touch point, well, kind of a two-part touch point is uh, I began college as a math major and ended up double majoring in mathematics and literature. And the dream was that I was going to get a PhD in math, I guess, which is funny because uh, he did not get a PhD. And that's something that eventually forced him out of the university world. But I was going to go further, I guess. And then I did two things. Number one, I went to graduate school for literature, not for math. And number two, I ended up falling short of the PhD myself as well. So so it was the, the, the double betrayal. But I remember noticing or maybe not remember is the word I, I look back and I notice that once these things happened he never really expressed pride in anything else that I did after that point um and certainly not in the writing the writing was kind of like this childish like you're still you're still doing this you're still you're you're adult now you're still writing your little stories and sending them out you still think that that that's a thing that can happen. That was a, a perfectly fine, normal thing for a kid to do, but you're still doing this. And I remember thinking, well, when I've been offered representation by an agent, now he's going to see that I'm not wasting my time with this. And nope. <laughs> oh, I've, I've sold stories to magazines. Now he's going to see that I'm not wasting my time with this. Nope. Um, uh, he did not live to see me nominated for Nebula, but it probably would have been the same thing, you know. Um, and so like about a month afterwards, I wrote the one version of the story that did not involve the mathematical background. It just involved the um, the coda, the, the device that allows um, Polly to communicate with his father after death. And it was just Polly really trying to get the acknowledgement from his father that he craved and um, struggling to achieve that. And that story was way too raw. Nobody would have wanted to read that. And it was even so raw that I, could, I couldn't even bring myself to send it to my writer's group. So I put that story away for about three years, I guess. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I kept mulling on it. I, I felt like what the story needed was another story you know, an A story and a B story about like that emotional story would work better if it were playing in the background and there was some more tangible search going on in the foreground. And then separately, a lot of, uh, not a lot, I guess, but some people had said to me that I should write a story about math since I have a math background. And what they don't realize is that the fact that I have a math background makes it much harder for me to write a story about math. Because if I was mm -hmm. writing about, if I were writing about uh, time travel, um, then, or faster than light travel, then I would just make up a name and say, you know, they frotzed the uh, Jurgensen drive and boom, the stars exploded or something. <laughs> and I wouldn't even worry about it, you know, but I'm writing about math and and I'm supposed to know something about math. So if I say something really dumb, then I feel like that I will look like a fraud, I guess. So it really mm -hmm. put a lot more pressure on me. But I kept coming back to that idea and to the thought that, well, maybe uh, Polly and his father are working on solving a math problem like a millennium problem. And that's how that came together.
I, I love it because it's kind of like this juxtaposition of math, which you think is a very binary kind of mm-hmm. not emotional world. Mm-hmm. Although I know some mathematicians who would argue with me on that, um, you know, and and then the emotion of these characters. So I, I'm personally very pleased that you were recognized publicly for it because I thought it was a really brilliant story. Um, yeah, thank you. So you've written a lot of short stories. You actually do have a novel coming out in mm-hmm. 2024, I believe. It's your first novel. First published one anyway. (laughs) Okay. Well, yes, I should. Yes. Your first published novel. What can you tell us about it? So it is currently titled Benny Ramirez and the uh, Nearly Departed. That's not the title that I originally came up with. So that's why I say it like that. Um, You know how it is. Sometimes people say, yeah, that that's not the title. This is the title. Yeah. And it's uh, due to come out in the spring of 2024 from Knopf Books for Young Readers which I did not know it was pronounced Knopf. So that is a thing that I learned. I don't think I did either. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing we've all learned. And it is a middle grade story about a, a young Cuban-American boy uh, whose family inherits the mansion uh, that his music star grandfather uh, previously lived in. Only it turns out that uh, his grandfather is still hanging around, still has some unfinished business and everybody has, well, our kid and uh, and his grandfather have their theories about what that unfinished business might be. And they're both wrong at first. And it's about trying to get to the bottom of that. I I can't wait. Um, I, I love that you write so much about Latino characters and especially with some of your younger fiction, just because the idea of, you know, someone else being able to read that and see themselves, see their families in those stories is important. And I assume it's important for you too. It is. It's funny that you mentioned that because it was sometime around, I don't know, sometime around the mid aughts that it occurred to me that all of the stories I was sending around featured white heterosexual characters. And, and I am, you know, not exactly either of those things. And, and I I thought, well, wait, what's going on here? You know, like I had internalized the idea that this is what a protagonist was. And once I noticed that, uh, I started trying to push back against that a little bit more in my writing. And I remember having a point somewhere around maybe 2010 or so, I know it must've been later than that, where I thought, actually, I am not going to write any more um, characters who don't check off any boxes in common with me you know i'm not going to write any characters who are anglo cisgender heterosexual you know i don't know blonde blue-eyed men something like that and that actually gave me a little bit of a uh, of a dilemma with um proof by induction because that's exactly what polly is polly is um as far as the text shows us um just an anglo heterosexual dude but every time I tried to change something in that story, then it felt to me like it became about that. And so mm-hmm. if Polly had been um, Latinx, then I I worried that people were going to say, oh, this is a story about Latinx culture wrestling with machismo and with um, um relationships with fathers and sons and and it wasn't that story and I didn't want it to seem to be that story 
And if I made Polly um, non-binary, then then it would be a story about that. And I didn't want it to be, you know, if I made, uh, I didn't want it to be any of those things. So I ended up kind of going back on my word with that story. I find that fascinating though, just because I think it speaks to the still having a need, even though, you know, we, we've seen an overrepresentation of stories about white hetero cisgendered men. Um, there's still some work to be done in addressing the toxicity just in relationships in general that still exist, even in that kind of, you know, space that we've all read so much about already. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It also says something about the way that we absorb stories um, about marginalized people that if you're not careful, the story automatically is about the marginalization. And sometimes that's what you're going for. But plenty of times it's not. Right. Some it's just people being people. Yeah. Yeah. What what are the challenges between the short story form in writing and writing novel length fiction? I want to say that I am oddly comfortable going back and forth between the two. And that's that's only a little bit of a lie. <laughs> um <laughs> I believe, or maybe I'm equally uncomfortable going back and forth between the two. I I, I struggle with uh, attention and focus. I don't have a diagnosis, but these are things that I struggle with. So so that's why I said it'd be a little bit of a lie if, uh, if I said I was comfortable going back and forth because I struggle with both. Um, I struggle with attention and, and, and follow through and then my productivity isn't as high as I wish it were. But um, in the end, at, at the at whatever pace I do work at, um, I guess the difference for me is I'm a plotter either way, but the level of planning that I put into things, uh, I do a lot more planning for for novels and and do a lot more kind of beating it out ahead of time. Hmm. You're also a teacher. You teach mm -hmm. math to high school students. Do you find ideas or inspiration for your stories in the classroom? Rarely, but what I think I do find is um, a, a large, I would say majority of the fiction that I write is about young characters, whether they're teenagers or adolescents. And I think that there's a connection there. I don't know. I don't know which direction causality goes, but I spend a lot of time with young people. And so I feel like I'm a little bit attuned to how they think and to the, the concerns that they have. And also maybe that helps with getting the voice right. Teaching is such an incredibly demanding job on its own. And then you're going to be a writer on top of that. How do you balance those two things in your life? It's gotten easier. I think that probably that and, and, you know, parenting probably made my the beginning of me starting to sell take a lot longer than it might have you know um on the other hand it meant that by the time I was selling I had experienced a, a fair amount of life and and could maybe more quickly figure out what I wanted to talk about so I do want to balance that but yeah I would say the first 10 or 15 years of my career it was very difficult to find any time to write at all I'm not saying that I didn't uh, but a lot of the writing happened during summers um, or writing happened at a glacial pace. 
I've been doing it for long enough now that while I still take work home, I don't take it home anywhere near as much work as I did earlier in my career. So it is possible now to to get some writing done during the school year. Mm. But things like NaNoWriMo, forget it. That's impossible for me. <laughs> Your first language is Spanish. I'm curious if that has influenced the way you write, um, not just grammar and syntax, but how you think about language. That's an interesting question. I don't know that I have an answer to that. I um, I learned English uh, in kindergarten. So, so I've been speaking English for most of my life. And uh, at this point, I am more fluent in English than in Spanish. Uh, I am completely fluent in Spanish, but I tend to think in English. Off the top of my head, and this could be a totally bogus answer, but I think that there is a certain wryness in my sense of humor that I think may come out of that um, Cuban and Spanish cultural influence that I had. What do you think you want to see in the next generation of writers coming up? Hmm. I'm all for nuance. Um, I'm, I'm watching the, the implosion of uh, Twitter going on right now. Hmm. And I've been reading some some very thoughtful analyses by people I respect about how this is maybe a good time to stop and take stock in what it was that we got out of Twitter. And there there were many good things, I, 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 in large part, perhaps, owe my career to Twitter because I, that certainly aided in discoverability for me. And I've made wonderful relationships and gotten lots of support. But there's truth to the idea that we, you know, we are susceptible to getting these little bursts of dopamine when we um, dunk on somebody being wrong on the internet. And and I think, um, and, and to, you know, what does this have to do with your question? I just, that this is what's on my mind right now. And that's what I do when I write is the things that are on my mind make their way into it. So this... There are people who will talk about um, woke mobs and things like that, and and they're not right. But on the other hand, we do have a tendency to to eat our own, and we do have a tendency to characterize people as good and or bad. And most people fall on a spectrum somewhere. We have good people with their imperfections and we have bad people with their moments where they rise above or where they um, make so many bad choices but are also capable of uh, of love and are capable of, of showing compassion at an unexpected moment. And I guess that's what I try to put into my stories and that's what I, I crave in other stories. Jose, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been wonderful. I'm very uh, thrilled to have talked with you. Thank you very much. You can find out more about Jose Iriarte on our website at wskg.org. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>